We saw this morning that throughout its 2,000-year history, Old Testament Israel had been longing for the day of the Lord, when God would come and fulfil all of his promises, put right all that was wrong, and rescue them by bringing judgement on their enemies. But that, we saw, was not necessarily straightforward. As we read in Malachi chapter 3, the Lord would indeed come to his temple, but on that day, who would be able to stand? There was a warning from God that judgment would fall on his people too. So throughout their longing and their waiting, God urged them over and over again to turn back to him in repentance in trust and obedience. Fast forward then, several hundred years. Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter's son, starts travelling from Jewish synagogue to Jewish synagogue with a familiar yet newly urgent message. You can see it there on your page. Repent, Jesus said, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's the same message to God's people. It's time to repent, turn back to God in obedience and trust. But it's now newly urgent. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The time has arrived. Don't put it off any longer. But also the other new, surprising and frankly maybe a bit dodgy note in what Jesus says is, it seems to me that this carpenter's son, he seems to think that the promised coming of God that everyone has been waiting for has arrived with him, that he's it. You can see there on your page from Matthew chapter 13, verse 17, many prophets and righteous people, says Jesus, long to see the things that you see, yet didn't see them, to hear the things that you hear, but didn't hear them. You're witnessing, he's saying, the fulfilment of what God has promised. It's fulfilled here and now in me. Now that is exceptionally egotistical. Except that it sort of really seemed to be true. Because Jesus' actions backed up his extraordinary claim. You can see this written on your page on the left-hand side. Matthew records, Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, there's a miraculous rescue, not from slavery in Egypt or from political exile in Babylon. There is a miraculous rescue from something that I would say may be more powerful, more fundamental. Rescue from disease, rescue from sickness, and even, we know, he raised the dead back to life. That sure sounds like God putting right everything that's wrong. And that's indeed Jesus' own explanation of what's happening. Still on the page there, Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. 
This is a passage uh, in the Mark equivalent that we often do in first-year Bible studies in the EU, and it's a classic because you ask people, who do you think the strong man is? And because people know that the answer is always God or Jesus, or if you're clever, the Bible, um, they go, well, it's not the Bible in this one. It's probably Jesus. Jesus is the strong man. No, read what he said. He's saying that the devil is the strong man, but he's the one who's walked into the strong man's house put him in handcuffs, and is now liberating everyone who is captured by the strong man. That's what Jesus says he's doing. All of that points to the kingdom of God arriving, yes, with this Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son. And yet, when Jesus was asked, teach us how to pray by his disciples, notice what he told them. It's there in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. Jesus says, Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, praying for the kingdom to come in the future. Clearly, the kingdom, even though Jesus says, the kingdom has arrived here with me, Clearly, he's also saying you've got to keep praying that God's kingdom would come. So has it arrived or is it in the future? How does this work? When will the kingdom arrive? Well, to gain a better understanding, we actually need to delve back into the Old Testament to understand what God had promised. Daniel chapter 7, which I mentioned very briefly this morning, is an important Old Testament prophecy about the end. Have a look there on your page, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Daniel records this vision that the one true living God gave him. He says, I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Son of man can just, just is a way of saying a human being. The son of a man is a man, like it's a human being. He then says, This son of man approached the ancient of days, which is his description of God, and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion or rule is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Think about the details of what Daniel is seeing in that vision. This human being is given by God a universal and eternal kingdom. Universal, every people, nation and language will serve him. And eternal, we're told it's an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. This human being has a universal and eternal kingdom. He's ruling for God. It's God's kingdom. It's gifted by God to him to this chosen son of man. So I wonder, just given the background of that prophecy, can you understand a little bit of the significance of Jesus choosing that title, son of man, to refer to himself? Now, in typical Jesus fashion, it was a suitably ambiguous phrase, because remember, son of man can just mean human being. So when Jesus calls himself Son of Man, is he saying, 
I'm just another guy? Or is he saying, this son of man, from Daniel chapter 7, who's anything but just another guy? As we'll see, Jesus understood himself to be this promised son of man, from Daniel chapter 7, who would be given by God a universal and eternal kingdom, the promised kingdom of God. Okay, so when precisely in Jesus' life and ministry is this prophecy fulfilled? When does he come with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days and receive this authority and glory and kingdom? When does this happen for Jesus? Now, the answer at first seems a little bit complicated when you look at what Jesus himself says. I've highlighted three moments in Matthew's Gospel there on your page where Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man. First of all, look there from Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, When they persecute you in one town, escape to another. For I assure you, you will not have covered the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So Jesus is saying, The Son of Man will come in power and authority, bringing rescue through judgment before the gospel message about Jesus has even reached every town in Israel. It's going to happen before the gospel has got out to all those places. Okay. Then look at the second passage here from Matthew chapter 16, verses 27 and 28. Jesus said, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the Son of Man is going to come within the lifetime of some of Jesus' first century audience, that is, within that generation, maybe 40 years or so. Now, is the first part of that that little passage there, verse 27, is the first part referring to the same coming when he's going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father? Is he sort of using mini-apocalyptic language there about angels and glory to describe the same coming as in the second part of that passage? Or are we looking at two different comings of the Son of Man, one in the generation and one that's not happened yet? You've got to work that out. And then the third passage there from Matthew chapter 26, from Jesus' trial, just before he died. The high priest said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He directly quotes Daniel chapter 7. And he says, from this moment, that is from the moment of my death, from now on, I will be the ruling son of man. So how do we put all of those different things together? Is it from the moment of his death? Is it when he comes in the glory of, uh, with the angels in the glory of his father? Is it within this generation? Is it some will have died, but others won't have died before it? How does that all fit together? Well, you remember this morning when we looked at the Old Testament, one of the things I pointed out about the longing for the day of the Lord was how the 
day, there were multiple days of the Lord in the Old Testament. They were all on the same big trajectory, but there were multiple days of the Lord. I think the same is going on here. There exist multiple comings of the Son of Man, but they're all wrapped together in the one person, the Lord Jesus, and his one reign as God's chosen king, the Son of Man. So as in the Old Testament where days of the Lord reoccurred within the one trajectory, so here in the coming of the Lord Jesus. In Jesus, the coming of the Son of Man, he establishes his kingdom and he rescues God's people through judgment, but it has multiple instances within the one reign of Jesus. So a particular example of this was the destruction of the old city of Jerusalem in AD 70 by Roman armies. You can read about it in secular histories. Jesus had promised that Jerusalem would be destroyed as part of God's judgment on his people for rejecting him, their Messiah. Jesus predicted Jerusalem would be destroyed and the temple would be torn down. And that would be part of his rule as son of man. It would happen within the lifetime of some of his hearers. It happened in AD 70. It happened before the gospel had even reached all the towns of Israel. I take it that that's what the coming of the Son of Man is that he's referring to in those first two passages. Matthew chapter 10 and also Matthew 16 verse 28. But that's just one example, just one expression of his rule as the exalted Son of Man. That's a rule that started with his death. It is from now on, as Jesus said, but it continues on even into all eternity. So I've tried to capture the way Jesus talks about it in the diagram there on your page. For Jesus, the kingdom is established by his death, resurrection and ascension, his rising to be at his Father's right hand, and ruling in God's kingdom. The kingdom is established by all of those things working together. His death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Through that, the kingdom is established. And once his kingdom has been established, through his death, resurrection, and ascension, then Jesus carries out his rule. He rules as king. And he carries out in-time judgments such as the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But all those in-time judgments are meant to point us forward to his final end-time judgment, which we're still waiting for today. Or to express it in, say, kingdom terms, through his death, resurrection and ascension, Jesus establishes his kingdom and he's now ruling as king, but his kingdom is not yet complete. There are still enemies to be defeated, still wrongs to be put right. So Jesus can encourage us as his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, because we're still waiting for it in its fullness. So what does all of this mean in terms of the end? Well, another way of saying that Jesus establishes his kingdom is to say Jesus achieved the end. He's made the end a present reality. What do I mean by that? How does Jesus do this? 
Jesus achieves the end in himself. He achieves God's end in himself. Let me explain what I mean. To step, uh, think through this, we have to first of all step back and ask, what is the end that God has promised? What's the great end? Well, the, the key to understanding the great end is to understand the beginning. So we need to go back to Genesis chapter 2 and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You're probably familiar with the story. Let me remind you of some of the key points. Adam and Eve, created by the one true living God, placed in this beautiful paradise, the Garden of Eden, where God gives them all manner of trees with all sorts of their fruits for food, including, in the centre of the garden, the tree of life, which kept, when you ate its fruit, kept death at bay. Adam and Eve weren't created immortal, but they had the tree of life which granted them immortality. It kept death at bay and enabled them to live forever. But as they lived there in the garden, they had a job to do. God told them, your task is to work the garden, to care for it, enhance its fruitfulness. So to summarise it, there there's a box on your page where it says the end you can summarise, I think, that picture of the Garden of Eden and God's plans and purposes with six P's, six words starting with P. You can fill in the blanks as we go. What you see there in Genesis chapter 2 is a picture of God's people, that's the first blank, God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence. Enjoying God's presence with his provision and protection. With his provision and protection and working in God's project. Six Ps to summarise that picture of the beginning, which is also the end. God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence with his provision and protection and working in God's project. If you know the Lego movie, everything was awesome. That's the picture there in Genesis chapter 2, right? Everything, well, use Bible language, it just says, behold, it was very good. That's what God says. But Lego movie would say, everything was awesome. That's the picture of Genesis chapter 2. And that awesomeness is precisely what Adam and Eve lost when they rejected the one true living God. That's what sin lost for us. When they rejected God's word and rejected his way and refused to worship him, then they lost that privilege, the blessing of God's being, being God's people in God's place, enjoying his presence with his protection and provision and working in his project. Yet the wonderful truth about the one true living God is that he is good and full of love even for his rebellious creatures. So God's good plan was to recover his good purposes for his creatures. And so the beginning, which was lost, is also a shadow of the end to which God is restoring all things. That's where God is taking us. That is the 
destination of the river that we are in, the stream of his sovereignty. Well, let's dig down a little bit deeper then into what were the problems introduced by Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. And we're reflecting here, not on Genesis chapter 3, but on Genesis chapter 2, but on Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve ignore God's word and way. They eat from the single tree in the garden that God said you shouldn't eat of it because it won't be good for you. They did go ahead, they ignored him, they ate of that and look at the consequences that came about. You can see there I've got a I've reproduced an old woodcut that tries to capture what were the problems introduced in Genesis chapter 3 because of Adam and Eve's sin. Three things that I sort of stood out to me in that woodcut, that picture that I, as I looked at, and I've highlighted them there for you. The first one is, there's a snake there, there's a serpent. If you know the story of Genesis chapter 3, you'll know that that serpent, that snake, is the devil, the evil one, Satan. The devil is real. He's not to be feared by those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, but he is real. He is a deceiver. Jesus describes him as the father of lies and also as a murderer from the beginning, referring back to Genesis chapter 3. That is, the devil distorts God's truth. His intention is to destroy human beings. And the way the devil destroys human beings is by deceiving them so that they stop worshipping the one true living God, so that they reject his word and his way, and so that they fall under God's judgment. That's his clever plan for destroying humanity. If God is going to deal with the problems that were introduced there in Genesis chapter 3, then God is going to have to do something about the evil one. Something about Satan. Secondly, you can see there, humanity. There is a sickness, a perversity in the heart and mind of humanity, such that we do refuse to submit to the one true loving God, that we do refuse to accept his word and way. It's a perversity because it's not in our best interests. It's not how you live life to the full by ignoring him. Our addiction to rebellion against God, our addiction to sin, our slavery to it needs to be fixed. It needs to be removed. We need freedom from it if we're to get to the end that God really has in store for us. third set of problems are there. You can see in that third little picture, there's a tree with some fruit on it. I take it in the, in the woodcut that that's a representation of the tree of life. The tree of life, you might remember, was planted in the Garden of Eden by the one true living God so that Adam and Eve could enjoy its fruit and keep death at bay. And yet, as a result of their sin, they are exiled from the garden cut off from the tree of life and now death is introduced. Death is the consequence directly of our rebellion against God, our sin. So now death reigns and not only death, there's also pain 
and suffering and tears and crying and toil. But death is probably the worst curse of all. Those are the problems that have been introduced as a result of human sin. If God is going to bring us to a good end, then he's got to deal with those problems. All of those problems are dealt with in the Lord Jesus, in his death, resurrection and ascension. That's what we need to understand and fill out. Because humanity's fall was significant. It was huge. But God's heart was to rescue, was to save. Have a look at those just two quotes I've given you there from Ezekiel 18 and from Exodus 34. In Ezekiel 18, God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? You might think, well, maybe. I mean, if they're wicked and they die, maybe that's a good thing. But God says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. And you can see what he says about himself in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God is full of mercy and grace and love, but that doesn't mean that he ceases to be just. In the one true living God, you have both justice and mercy and love and compassion. So hence God's plan to recover his good purposes for his creation and his creatures. The whole history of God dealing with humanity is part of this plan. And key to it all is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Son of Man. And in him... God turns this promised end into an actual reality. The end is realised, achieved for one human being, for the Lord Jesus. How so? Well, first of all, Jesus is the one in whom God's love and justice meet. Jesus is the place where rescue through judgement comes together in one person. This is how Jesus understood his own place in God's plans. He used an uh, uh, incident from the Old Testament to illustrate it. In Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites were on their way to the promised land, having been rescued out of Egypt by God. And yet, despite being rescued by God, they were pretty grumpy with God. They were grumbling against him. So, this might raise a few questions for you. So God sends venomous snakes amongst them as a judgment. And many die. At this point, the Israelites realise grumbling against God is probably not the right thing to do. So they repent and call out to God to rescue them. God then tells Moses, their leader, to set up a bronze snake on a pole in the middle of the camp so that whoever is bitten might look up at the bronze snake and God says, if they just turn around and look at the bronze snake, they'll live. So that's what they do. Now the Lord Jesus understands that incident from Israel's history as a shadow of the rescue that God will achieve through his own death and being lifted up on a pole, lifted up on a cross. 
You can see what he says there in John chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Notice there, there is rescue through judgment. Who is the one judged? Who is the one lifted up? It's the Son of Man. It's Jesus who is judged and dies. And who is the one saved? It's the world. Jesus, the great Son of Man, is lifted up in death so that the world might be saved through him. This is the constant message of the New Testament, that God sent his Son, the Lord Jesus, to save you and me from what we deserve. It is there time and time again. It is the repeated message of the New Testament. So you can see there in Romans chapter 8, verse 3 on your page, Paul writes, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God, and then you can fill in the blank, condemned sin in the flesh. Sin does get judged. Your sin, my sin, gets judged. Where? At the cross of Jesus. Jesus takes my sin, your sin, the sins of the world, bears them to the cross under the just judgment of God as our representative in our place. God gives sin what it deserves, condemnation, by focusing it in his son. Rescue through judgment. Who is rescued? We are. Have a look at the second passage there, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Paul again this time writes, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin. What's the blank? Anyone know? For us. us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God displays his righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ by condemning sin. Sin gets what it deserves, so that we might be free. Why does God do this? Well, the third passage there on your page, 1 John 4, verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is all an outworking of God's love, that he sent Jesus as the atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice that turns away his just wrath, the sacrifice in our place. That is an expression of God's profound, beyond comprehension love. For me and for you. And so we see part of the end, the judgment on sin, fulfilled in Jesus' own person there at the cross. 
And actually, it's not just judgment on sin, but it's the whole end, the six Ps that we see come to reality in Jesus through his death and resurrection and ascension as king. Notice some of these other passages there on your page from Romans chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. Paul says, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Death has now been defeated in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his resurrection. Jesus lives right now, this evening. Jesus lives in his resurrection body, never to die again. Immortality was lost at the garden. It's been brought back to life, literally, in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or the next passage there from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which is a sort of a paraphrase for death. For since death came through a man, that is Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Notice there, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, that is, the first bit of a harvest to come. It's not just him alone who is raised, it's all those who put their faith in him who will also be raised. So Jesus' resurrection, like his death, is for us. He's the first fruits, the one in whom all will be made alive. And then the third passage there from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 and 26 Christ must reign, rule, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus is currently working in God's project. He is ruling over God's creation as God intends. And so you can see the six Ps of the end fulfilled in Jesus' own person. The end has come to life. It's been realised, actualised in the Lord Jesus, in his own self. He is God's person, living now in God's place at the Father's right hand, enjoying God's presence with his Father's provision and protection, particularly in his resurrection body, immortal, never to die again, and now working in his Father's project, ruling over his Father's world as Lord of all. The end has been realised in Jesus already. But as we've seen throughout those passages, he achieved that end for us. The end has been made a reality in the living Lord Jesus, but he's done it in his great love for us. What we could never achieve, God has already done in the Lord Jesus. And he's done it, so that we might share in it. So what does all of this mean for us? Well, it means a couple of things. First of all, you have a living and sure hope. The great end has been achieved. It's not speculative, as though no one's ever got there yet. It's not in doubt because Jesus didn't just do it for himself, he did it for us. 
Your sin has been condemned in Jesus' body. The payment has been made. It's the end of condemnation. It's the end of guilt. And your new life has been secured because Jesus has been raised from the dead as the first fruits. It's the end of uncertainty because the end has become a reality in the resurrected and living Lord Jesus. That's why when Peter writes here on your page, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Now, that idea of a living hope, it's very odd. What does he mean there, new birth into a living hope? He's talking about the resurrected Lord Jesus. Your hope, your sure future is the resurrected Jesus. You will receive what he has received if you put your trust in him. He is your great inheritance, that you'll be resurrected like him. That's why Peter can say, praise praise God, he's given you new birth into a living hope. You want to know what your hope is? Look at the resurrected Jesus. That's your hope, that you will share that resurrection life because your sins have been paid and you've put your faith in him and he's been raised as the first fruits. That is your living hope. And what does he then say? In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Because no matter how tough life gets, or how ambiguous life becomes, you have such a secure and assured hope that that can be a source of joy, no matter how confused, no matter how many tears. You have a sure living hope in the resurrected Jesus. There are many complexities to life. Who knows what hurdles you might face in the, in the days, months, years to come, or, or frankly, what hurdles you are already facing. But I want to reassure you, the one true living God, he is good and he is loving and he is wise. He is not preoccupied with the trivialities, with the superficialities or secondary issues of life. He cares about all your problems, but he cares most of all about your deepest problems. And he does so, he cares about them with abundant and powerful generosity. The end that you need has already been made a reality in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death for your sin, in his resurrection so that you might share his new life. And if you really grasp that, then that will produce in you a thankfulness. A thankfulness that is deeper than the discontentedness that we experience in so much of life. You know, uni, it's, it's good, but it's, you know, yeah. And work life, 
Well, it's exciting for five minutes. And then, and then it's just, this is it. This is what I was working to for all those years at uni. This. Life has so much discontentedness. But if you grasp the living hope that you have in the risen Lord Jesus who died for you, if you have grasped that, there is a thankfulness that is deeper than the discontentedness. There is a peace which is deeper than anxiety. And there is a lot of anxiety. There's a lot to be anxious about. There is so much that is uncertain. There is so much confusion at a personal and societal and global level. But if you grasp that the end, the glorious great end, has already been achieved in the living Lord Jesus for you, that produces a peace that can take you through the anxiety. The present may be a mess, but the future is secure and real because Jesus lives. And it also illuminates, I think, the fundamental decisions that we all must make. Life to the full is secured by Jesus and realised in him. Will you turn to him to share in it? You can see the second passage there from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, the very end of Matthew's Gospel. Then Jesus came to the disciples and said, this is after his resurrection, just before he ascends to the Father. Jesus came to the disciples and said, All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Echoes right there, right, of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Life to the full is found in following this Son of Man. That is the only secret to life to the full. Living in the stream of God's sovereignty, in the river of his plans and purposes, it is following this man who died for you, who rose again that you might have life, who ascended to his Father's right hand. As we sit here in freezing Katoomba, he sits in glory And his spirit is amongst us. The end has been achieved in Jesus. And he's done it for you. Praise him. Let me lead us in a prayer. Living Lord Jesus, we praise you as the one who died for the sins of the world, paid the debt that we never could, 
out of your great love. We praise you as the first fruits, the one who's been raised by your Father from the grave. We praise you as the living one who rules now at your Father's right hand with powers and authorities and submission to him. We pray, please, that you would soften our hearts so that we might recognise you as the Lord of all and by putting our faith and our trust in you that we too might share in the fruits of your death and resurrection and ascension. And we pray this with joy and thanks in our hearts. Amen. I'm going to give you a moment to spend some time in reflection. You can see there the reflection wheel. Give you a moment to write down something new, something for which you're thankful, maybe a question that you have, a response you'd like to make, and something out of tonight that you could share with somebody else.